since the uh, invasion and maybe before that, we've got the increase in gas prices and also the fertiliser problem that's meant fertiliser has gone up uh, 400%. So that, coupled with the Ukraine and Russia crisis, is having a massive effect on the production of, of grain all over the world. That was the Lincolnshire farmer Andrew Ward talking to GB News earlier this year about the impact that the Russian invasion has had on the farming industry. I'm Kate Andrews, the Spectator's economics editor, and welcome to a special episode of the Spectator's podcast. As minds focus on energy security and global supply chains in the wake of the war, and before that, the pandemic, one supply chain that you might not think about often has had a crucial impact on the cost of living crisis in the UK, fertilizers. Climate change, along with pressures caused by the conflict in Ukraine, have left many nations vulnerable to food insecurity. For the Russia-Ukraine conflict, South African farmers were already having to grapple with higher input costs. Fuel prices have been steadily rising and a week around before the conflict ensued made the importation of raw materials like fertilizers more expensive. During peacetime, Russia and Ukraine met about 28% of the world's demand for fertilizer. A big problem now. How do we solve it? One company in Swindon is trying to revolutionize the British fertilizer market. They say they can make high-efficiency and low-polluting fertilizer from organic waste gathered from British farms, creating a completely self-sufficient production line. For their cutting-edge science, CCM Technologies won the Spectator's Innovator of the Year awards last year, beating dozens of Britain's most brilliant startups. In this tense geopolitical moment, I caught up with Pavel Kisulensky, CEO of CCM. Pavel, tell us what's been happening in the fertilizer industry since Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I mean, there are really two issues. One is obviously the the invasion, and that is significant for one major reason, and that is that the United Kingdom import about 60% of the fertilizer it needs to grow the food that it does in this country. And bulk of that comes from Belarus and from Russia, and to a certain extent, a bit from the Ukraine. But there's also a secondary issue which is quite important, and that is the gas price, which obviously is is very impacted both during the time of the invasion, but also back into September of last year. There was a heightening of the gas prices, and that's important because when you make fertiliser in the traditional conventional way, which has huge carbon intensity, you use a lot of gas. So that is the other issue that is coming from, particularly for Russia, and the impact on gas prices. Mm. For those of us who aren't farmers or industry experts, can you give us an idea of just how crucial fertilizer is to the modern food production process? Yeah, in simple terms, over the last five or six decades, the production of food has been absolutely revolutionized by the use of fertilizer. Uh, Fertilizer industry is still using a process technology called Harbour Bosch, which has been around for 75, 80 years. And it is around the creation of ammonia, and that has allowed the very high-intensity fertilisers to be able to be used that generates the sort of yields to feed the population. The downside is it's incredibly carbon-intensive, and we have to resolve that issue. Mm. Well, let's go back to the geopolitical implications for fertilizer first, before we move on to the environmental impacts. There's a fair amount of pressure from the UN and elsewhere to establish fertilizer supply through a deal with Ukraine and Russia, in the same way that a grain deal was secured earlier in the year. That's something that has not worked out with gas the supply of gas and energy has really become a, a tool of war as far as Russia's concerned. But do you think there are any legs to this idea that fertilizer might get a bespoke deal? 
I certainly haven't had any sense of that. I mean, I think if you go up to the 50,000 foot view, it's clear that if, if we as a country are importing 60% of the nutrients we require to grow the food, that's probably not a great position to be in from a food security point of view. And I think we need to we need to adjust to that, especially as there is one other factor that's really impacting fertiliser. Of the remaining 40% of the fertiliser that we in the UK use, the bulk of that is produced by CF Fertilisers, a big American company. I think they're the second largest producer of fertiliser in the world. They announced about six weeks ago that they are permanently closing one of their two facilities, which is the equivalent of 30% of the UK's domestic capacity. So irrespective of what's happening in in the invasion in Belarus and Russia, we are also impacted by the closure of domestic capacity as well. And we need to resolve that pretty quickly. Mm, You use the term food security there. And this idea of resource security, whether it be medicine, energy or food, has become very topical over the past few years as we've had a series of crises, first the pandemic, then Russia's invasion into Ukraine. I was very surprised to learn, I'm sure listeners will be as well, that Russia and Ukraine together export almost 30% of the world's fertilizers made from nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. There's a balance to be struck here, isn't there, between the basic necessities that a country might need in the wake of a crisis to to get through it, and then, of course, what's actually cost-effective, and what's the best way to secure all these resources, because it will not be the case in every circumstance that to have something homegrown or homemade is actually the best way to procure that resource. Yeah, that's a, that's a very fair point, and, you know, one of the important issues around the growth of the sustainable fertilizer market which encompasses quite a lot of technologies is the fact that we have to meet the same price point you know one of the big challenges with sustainability right across industries not just in fertilizers is the fact that normally somebody ends up paying the penalty for doing the right thing whether that's the consumer society in general the corporates or even government subsidies And we need to be very clear about exactly the impact of sustainable technologies as they relate to the economics of it. In our case, the production of sustainable fertilizers can be done at exactly the same prices as farmers are currently paying right now with better outcomes. Mm. I want to come on to the price points and the pros and cons of the sustainable fertilizers, but this seems like a good point to transition into the environmental impact of fertilizer. First, can you tell me a little bit about what your company CCM does and particularly explain how it's different to how other fertilizers are made? Yeah, and again, in simple terms, when you're comparing us to what we've currently, as a society, been using for seven decades is chemically derived or fossil fuel derived fertilisers based off the Harbour-Bosch process and its creation of ammonia. Where we are as a company is the ability to use CO2, normally considered a bad thing, but in our case is a vital part of the chemical reactions that bring together various waste streams. You know, one of the best examples in simple terms is PepsiCo, which is a customer of CCMs, and probably not so well known, but they have the largest market share of the manufacture of crisps in the world, Walkers, Lays, Fritolays. So they have nearly 16% of the world market. Now, we're working with them, and it's well documented, particularly taking the waste that's left over when you transform a potato into a crisp. We're taking the CO2 from the the chimney stack of their potato processing plant, and we're going to be sourcing the phosphorus and the ammonia, which is currently a contamination from one of the local water utilities, 
and reintegrating that at the front. So all of the inputs are currently considered waste, CO2, the waste potatoes, the skins and the fibres left over, and the ammonia and the phosphorus. And using CO2 as that to bring them together into an exact analogue pellet of a fertiliser that a farmer would be used to. So from a farmer's practical experience, he's not going to be experiencing anything new. He can use the same machinery, he gets the same accuracy as he spreads it across the field. Really important now as we get to towards precision agriculture. And fundamentally, he's growing a crop of whether it's potatoes or corn or oats that is effectively net zero because we're being able to produce that fertiliser in a, in a net zero way. So it has no negative impact to the planet. So you're taking what would otherwise be waste and you're then recycling it, essentially, into making this more sustainable fertiliser. Absolutely. And just to give you a quantum, you know, in simple terms, which always staggered me coming from finance, is that the production of one tonne of fertiliser creates four and a half tonnes of CO2 emissions per tonne of product. I mean, it's sort of madness. That number's closer to seven in the United States because for various reasons... You know, even the best in the world, Yara, the largest fertilizer manufacturer, uses a lot of hydro, but they're probably still at 3.6. So, you know, it's a massive amount of emissions for just one tonne of product. Mm. And what about the waste from the fertilizer? I was interested to learn actually just how little of the fertilizer's nutrient is sucked in to whatever's being grown. Does the more sustainable fertilizer produce less waste? Yes, it does. I mean, you're right, and it's staggering that you know, on a good day, and this is an average, but on a good day, only 50% of the nutrients in a fertiliser pellet will ever reach the root ball of that plant. Where does the rest go? It either goes up in the atmosphere in NO2 NOx emissions, not good for us as a, as a society, or it leaches off into groundwater and rivers. Now, using the process that we have and the organic matter, it means that the efficiency rates go up by a very significant percentage. So more of that nutrients are getting to the root ball of the plant to help it grow and not disappearing either in bad emissions that damage air quality or into the local rivers to pollute them. On that point about food security, though, and I suppose in this case, fertilizer security, is it really the case that sustainable fertilizer can be made from start to end in a place like the UK without relying on imports, without relying on any other country's resources? Yeah, completely. I mean, so the answer to your question is definitely can all be done within this jurisdiction as it can do in other jurisdictions where we're active. But, you know, what are the speed bumps that will stop this? One of them is the amount of recovered recycled ammonia that is available. Currently, food waste companies and water utilities are required by regulators to extract that at huge cost. But there really isn't an end market we will be that end market. But at the moment, one of the only small speed bumps is, is availability of recovered ammonia. And that will definitely help. But all of it can be sourced within the jurisdiction. Hmm. If it's all good news, why hasn't the UK and every other country, for that matter, made the full switch to the sustainable fertiliser? To be honest, we've needed to get the analytical data to support our claims So we're now in year eight of independent field trials conducted by outside agencies. Some of them, Tesco's has been involved in in funding trials with WWF, the Nature Fund, as has Pepsi. But you need that amount of data to be able to convince farmers and the industry generally that this is a real transition. And we are at that tipping point to be able to now go full scale commercial 
with the products and we will be ramping it up very, very quickly over the next couple of years. One of the major concerns over fertilizer at the moment isn't simply the supply, but what that lack of supply is doing to the cost of fertilizer, with prices going through the roof. But is it really the case that green fertilizer is going to cost the same or even less than what is currently on the market? So often, these greener options are sold as certainly being better for the environment and potentially being cheaper in the very long term. But with a cost of living crisis so acute right now, is it really the case that this is going to cost or have the knock-on costs for your average consumer stay the same or even come down? Well, I'll take you back to the question you asked around nutrient efficiency, i.e. that point about 50% of the nutrients get lost to the atmosphere or to to leaching. Because we're able to increase that nutrient efficiency, i.e. more of those nutrients get to the root ball of the plant, what's been shown over the last three years by independent work is that you you need 20% less fertiliser to achieve the same yield outcome. So in practical terms, from a farmer's point of view, his bill, which is enormous at the moment, will be down 20% because he won't need as much fertilizer to grow the same amount of crops. So you know, it really is something that should then flow through to the consumer, merely just on that point alone. And there are obviously significant benefits to soil health and soil fertility, which over decades will then benefit the soil and will allow it to improve its yields. But in the short term, that 20% nutrient efficiency will flow through to the cost of lowering the cost of, of, of goods to the shop. I know CCM Technologies has received some government grants, in particular in partnership with Severn Trent, you were awarded approximately a million pounds from government to explore new sustainable ways to recycle wastewater and even to convert it into a commercial product. Would this sustainable fertilizer be possible without government funding? Is it truly something that is revolutionary enough that it wouldn't, in the medium term, need state funding to make happen? The answer simply is that early stage funding, when the risk profile of new technologies is quite high, is definitely benefit. And we've been massive beneficiaries of of grant funding from Bayes and DEFRA, the two big departments. But the reality is, I think the next stage, which is does government, not just here in this country, but others, have to subsidise in the way that it has done in other technologies, the next transition, which is to get it right into the economy. Maybe solar is a good example and there are others as well. Our argument is that's not what we're requiring for this technology. It doesn't need government subsidies to really become embedded and large within the within the economy. That early stage funding to your question is vital because of the risk profile, but the key one is actually the subsidies going forward or the lack of need for those subsidies. So what do you envision as the next stage then? Will it be mass production? Will it be awareness? What do you see as as the next step? It's really production. Awareness is is going on well. We've had very good support from from government, from the ministers. We've had very good support from Tesco's and Pepsi. That's been that's been great. So that bit I'm less concerned about. And also we've had very good support from from both the NFU and the CLA and some of the farming groups which are, are critical. But the reality is that we've now got to a position where the buy-in is very significant and we're now going to need to get to the mass production phase pretty quickly. I mean, already for next year, already now we've probably got five times the amount of demand for the amount we'll be able to produce. So you know, that's our next big challenge. Would mass production be possible in a timeline that would help alleviate some of the pressures that have come out of Russia's war against Ukraine? Or are we thinking of a, a longer timeline than that? 
I think the impact of the Ukraine is something that is, you know, it, we're probably not going to be able to meet and alleviate those immediate challenges, but the more long term, and I'm talking not just out to 2030, which is what, eight years away or even less now. I'm thinking more like five years away. I mean, I think within three to five years, this technology will make a very significant impact to both our food security and also to a certain extent from our energy security, because this technology, by not using gas, is breaking the link between food production and gas, which is so damaging to us. And we've just experienced that over the last six months. That's a pretty ambitious timeline, and we'll look forward to catching up with you then. Thanks for joining me. Not at all. Thanks very much indeed. And thank you for listening. Another round of the Spectator's Innovator of the Year Awards is now underway, and if you'd like to hear more from the other companies disrupting their respective sectors, keep an ear out for our upcoming podcast, rounding up our regional finalists this year. Mm